And our passage this morning is Hosea chapter 14, the last chapter in Hosea's prophecy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hosea 14, and we'll make our way through these concluding verses in Hosea's story and book. Young Christians, young theologians, we're going to talk about chapter 14 using four words, just four. See if you can collect all four of them. See if you can hear them and keep them straight. We'll be able to take all these nine verses and put them into just those four words. So listen closely. This is the good news of Jesus and the prophet of Hosea, the prophet of heartbreak and the prophet of hope. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress, and from me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Pray with me as we begin. Oh, Lord, it's frightening to think of turning to stand before you, turning away from all of our sin and yet carrying it with us in all of its guilt. And how can we stand before a God as beautiful and holy as you are? And you tell us to bring with us the sacrifice of our lips. Simply coming before you and speaking our need and our deadness and our desire for your love to come upon us again, that's enough. And these words are not empty because they're full of the sacrifice of Jesus, not the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but Jesus who sacrificed his own righteous life as our atonement, and in whom we stand, not guilty, in whom we stand perfectly covered and seen as perfectly righteous. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us these things more and more clearly this morning and give to us peace and rest in them and lift our hearts after a week like so many other weeks we lived through, full of distractions, full of downfalls and failures, full of exhaustion and depression and weariness, full of idolatry, full of joys in the wrong things. After a week like this, 
We need the gospel of Jesus the Son. And if you'll meet us with your gospel in and through your Son this morning, then we can be lifted up and renewed and we'll give you thanks for all of this. We ask it all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Thirty years ago, when I was 11 years old, one Sunday afternoon during a frigid week in January, much like this one that we've just come through, Robbie Nelson and I were lost in the north woods of Michigan at night. We left his house that afternoon on cross-country skis, and we were skiing to the dam on the Big Sauble River. It was three miles out and three miles back. And we'd done it before, we'd done it many times before, but this time we played too long at the dam, and by the time we set out for home, the sun had already begun to set, and before long we were skiing in the dark. And it was a hard trip, it was cold, skiing out we were fine, but we'd gotten sweaty, and When the sun goes down, sweaty kids turn into popsicles. And we were tired from being out all day, and the cold was only making the exhaustion worse. And the longer we were out in the dark, the more scared we became. And we skied, and we skied, and we skied. We went down one trail, and we'd pick up a crossing trail, and then another trail that cut across it. But we weren't skiing with any confidence. And we didn't know if we were moving in the right direction. We were moving out of desperation. And finally, after a few hours, we pulled ourselves up over a hill that looked just like the dozens of other hills we had pulled over that afternoon. And there through the tree line was the yellow light of a house. And we'd never skied so fast in all of our lives. It was like the sprint finish of the Olympic biathlon. And it turned out to be Robbie's house. But we hadn't found it. We just sort of stumbled upon it again. And just in time, adults were forming up search parties on snowshoes and snowmobiles to come out and find us and get us. There's this fear at the end of a revealing prophecy like Hosea that once we travel out over the terrain of our unbelief, not believing God's love is true and faithful and sure and lasting, there's this fear that once we have traversed the landscape of our idolatry, there's this nagging fear that Once we've crossed the geography of our spiritual adultery, we may not be able to find our way home again into the forgiveness of our God. But what Hosea 14 says to us is, the way home isn't hidden, and He doesn't leave us to find it on our own. He lights it up like a runway. It's like a homing beacon that calls to us through the dark and the cold In the horrible distance. Now look, to be honest, chapter 14 says nothing about Gomer showing up on her own front porch like a refugee one day. 
and ringing the bell. And when Hosea opens the door to his own shock, she stands before him looking like a hundred miles of bad road. Looking like the bride he remembers and the bride he barely knows. And she says to him, don't ask me where I've been, just know that I only want to be with you now. And chapter 14 says nothing of Hosea throwing his arms around her and pulling her close as he says, it doesn't matter where you've been. It matters that you're with me now and sobbing into her stale, smoke-filled hair. And the chapter doesn't show Gomer finding her old wedding band wrapped in a piece of cloth, tucked in the back corner of her dresser drawer and slipping it on her finger to find that it fits better now than it ever had. The chapter doesn't say Gomer did any of this. But the chapter does say she could have. And the chapter says, so could any of us. You can't really call chapter 14 an epilogue. It doesn't fit the criteria. It isn't really a conclusion, a resolution. If Hosea's prophecy were made into a film and it ended with chapter 14, you'd walk out of the theater angry and dissatisfied. It's unusually open-ended. And the reason is it's meant to serve as a recap. Chapter 14 is a recap of the entire book, the entire prophecy. It's a recap of the unlikely love story of sinners Endlessly enchanted by shady lovers. And the God who refuses to give up on his perfect love for them. It's meant to serve as a recap of the drama of redemption. The way love comes crashing into our lives and disrupts everything. It's a recap of the promise of the gospel. Which is a resolution in itself but it's lacking in all those circumstantial details that we lust after. It's meant to be a recap of the struggle of the Christian life and the disciples' experience. And it's a recap summed up in four words. The four words that solve all mysteries and answer all questions and silence all complaints. And the sequence is simple and it's economic, but it's powerful if we can hold all four words together. First, there's a word of guilt. That's how the entire prophecy opens up. Hosea the prophet is commissioned by God, ordered by God to go take to himself a wife who's a prostitute. The prophecy starts with guilt. It's not where anyone likes to start. And somehow that's where we need to start most of all. So the word that comes to us first says, here's where our relationship went sour and here's how we soured it. And it's hard to hear, but in relationships where we can talk like this, where we can wear it and own it, those relationships are safe and they're freeing and they feel like coming alive in hope. But in relationships where these realities have occurred, and you can't speak of them, you're not allowed to speak of them, those relationships feel like gathering dark. They feel like the plague. They feel like smothering death. 
And our only hope really is in being able to hear the truth about ourselves, the truth that we don't want to hear but need to. One night last month, my kids wore my nerves raw and the evening didn't end well. And afterward, I was sitting on the couch with Jennifer and I said, I don't know what happened back there. And I was fishing for Jennifer to say, it's not your fault, it's them, not you. And she didn't take the bait, she didn't go for it. I was really just asking her to lie to me. Tell me what I want to hear about myself. Prop up the mythology that I've built of myself. But she said, it's not them, it's you. You're the problem. And she didn't pull any punches. She was gentle, but she didn't hold anything back. And it hurt. But I needed it. And because I needed it, I also want it, even though it's not easy. There's honesty in the chapter as the passage opens. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. You've tripped yourselves sprawling and stuck with your broken loves. You've done this. But once I see my guilt, there's hope for healing now. I love the writer Fran Lebowitz because she's so unapologetically honest. I wish wish that Christians saw this as a quality that we should have more of. But somehow, we're convinced that we're to be politely dishonest. That's a Christian trait. So we turn ourselves into polite liars. Lebowitz says, All God's children are not beautiful. Most of God's children are, in fact, barely presentable. And I think that's the breakthrough. To realize I'm not presentable at all. That's where I'm poised to grow and blossom and mature in a real durable beauty. To see that in my heart and disposition and manner, I'm really ugly. That ugly and unbelieving are my default patterns. Now I'm ready to have the gospel come upon me with power and strength. It doesn't seem like it should be this way. But once the word of guilt comes to us and we hear it, now we're able to breathe again because we can stop pretending. It's hard, I know, but here's the payoff. Pride always kills relationship, and humility always heals it. You'll never build a relationship on your pride. It won't ever work. You can try and try and try. You'll never make it, I promise you. And humility will always heal it. And humility in us starts with the word of guilt spoken to us and our hearing it and agreeing to it. And thankfully, we're not left there. Guilt is only the first word. But it's followed by the word of grace. Guilt is always answered by grace. And that's what makes the gospel the gospel. It's beautifully stated in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. Apostasy means running away from the truth. Abandoning what we know to be true. Abandoning the love and the faithfulness of God. Our hearts running out on Him. Leaving Him again. 
And I will love them freely, God says, for my anger has turned from them. Or it's better said, I have turned my anger from them. It's not just that time has worn on and he's forgotten his anger. Deliberately, he's put it aside. It's as beautiful as anything Hosea has proclaimed and written in his prophecy to this point. And the picture within the statement is this. When, Hose, when, when Gomer rather comes home, Hosea brings her into the house and he changes her out of her rags. And they're clothes that tell the story of all her fidelities. Torn lingerie worn like street clothes. Clothes that were never meant to name her identity. But she's worn them like a uniform. And he strips them from her. Not to use her, but to heal her. And it's terrifying and it's tender. And he puts her in a dress that he's bought for her. He picked it out. And he pressed it and he left it hanging in the closet waiting for her. And he peels it out of the plastic and he pulls it over her head and zips up the back. And he wipes her tear-streaked mascara and washes off all her lurid makeup. And all she wears on her bruised cheekbones now is his kiss. And it makes her more radiant than she's ever been. And he pulls her hair back and ties it behind her head so that she can't hide her face in shame anymore. He won't let her hide in shame There's no room for shame where love is. And standing there, she looks like new vows. Standing there, she looks like summer. And in the awkwardness, she tries to sputter out some hasty arrangement of regret and how things will be different if he'll only take her back. But he cuts her off. He won't let her talk. Shh, shh, shh. And there's no awkwardness in this for him. But it's too soon for her to speak. It's not her turn. He gets the first word. And the first word is, I love you. The first word is the word of grace. And then comes the word that follows. After his I love you, all of a sudden she finds in herself the freedom to speak. And now she's going to speak more honestly and openly and truthfully and passionately than she was prepared to speak before. This next word, after guilt has come to her, after grace has come to her, the next word, the one that comes from her, is the word of repentance. Repentance is just an inability to fool ourselves anymore. It's a refusal to deceive ourselves anymore. We see ourselves more and more clearly and accurately. Like Groucho Marx, who once sent a telegram to the exclusive Friars Club of Hollywood. And the wire read, Please accept my resignation. I don't want to belong to any club that will accept me as a member. And that's good repentance. But this is important. We get the sequence wrong and it's killing us. This is what's wrong with our hearts. This is what's wrong with our worship and our living. It's what's wrong with our relationships with each other. It's what's wrong with our marriages and our parenting. Listen closely. 
Grace comes before repentance. And I very often hear us wanting to put repentance before grace, but that's desperately out of order. Grace comes before repentance. The cross comes before contrition. Jesus taking the full sorrows of a cross heavy with my sin opens up my sorrows just enough so that I can be tired of my sin and I can hate it and I can want to put it down and stop clutching it to myself. But He doesn't open up my sorrows so much that I'm swept away by them and overwhelmed with them. Jesus accepting my sorrows as His own is the assurance that my sorrows won't be met with coldness. But they'll be answered with compassion. And that's what makes my sorrows a turning and not a tragedy. And the very same sequence shows up in the text. The chapter opens and the first word is return, come. It's a call, it's not a threat. It's a welcome and a reception. And then repentance comes after in verse 2. Go to Him and take words with you as you go to Him. Put it all in words. And there's this eloquent admission of sin. It's graphic and detailed in verse 3. Oh Lord, we've trusted Assyria more than the love of our God. We have loved military, political, economic strength more than the strength of our God. But we will begin to trust your heart toward us, not the muscle of horses and armies and diplomatic delegations. And we've sculpted statues and we've given them life and we've assigned to them the names of gods and we've given our hearts over to them. But they don't love orphans. They've made us into orphans. And now according to your great promise, take it all away. It's a great lesson in how to repent. In the safety of love, to say out loud to ourselves and to brothers and sisters and to God Himself, this is how I've been wrong. And let your love overcome it. This is crucial though. Repentance is not a condition for love. Repentance is what happens when we're convinced That gospel love moves first. Repentance is what happens when we're convinced of the love that calls us and chases us and fights for us and can't wait to embrace us, aches to embrace us and heal all wrongs between us. And finally, the last word. The last word is the word of rejoicing. There is no rejoicing without repenting, and repentance never stops dead in its tracks. It always erupts into rejoicing. And that may tell us something about whether we're truly repenting when we attempt to do it. If we end in rejoicing, then we're repenting. And if we fall short of it, then we're probably not. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus overpowering our sin have to end in rejoicing, don't they? And rejoicing shows up in the garden imagery of verses 5 and 6. I'll be like the dew to Israel, to my people. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, an old growth forest, in other words, thick and sturdy and immovable, unshakable. 
His shoots shall spread out. It's the opposite of withering and dying. It's thriving and flourishing. His beauty shall be like the olive, rich and luxuriant. And His fragrance will be like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath My shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? Am I not better than idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. I'm never dry and sparse and bare. From me comes this endless crop of fruit in you. And in those few verses, what Hosea tells us is that rejoicing isn't just an emotion. It's embodied. It's continuing public change. Rejoicing means no longer looking, no longer needing, no longer wanting to run from the God who loves us perfectly. This is what the gospel looks like. This is what conversion looks like if you're not a Christian. These four words strung all together, that's conversion. And this is what maturity and sanctification and growth look like if you are a Christian. The repetition of these four words in an endless cycle that never gets tiresome because it's always bearing the heavy load and doing this earth-moving work in us. A clear sense of our terrible, painful guilt to set our hearts hard against our sin. And a greater sense of the grace that gives us relief and doesn't leave us to languish and die under the weight of guilt, and an eloquent, confident repentance, wanting to be free of the power and the rule of our sin, and it's all followed up by a rollicking rejoicing. I don't know if you can conceive how these things actually work together, but it's something like the scars of our sin being turned to trophies of love. Our scars being turned to marks of beauty and not disfigurements that need to be hidden. Our deepest failures being made into the places of, in, into the places of our greatest celebrations. This is where Jesus in His gospel meets us and His love rewrites for us the story of love thrown away. Now it's love reasserted in love that can't be turned away. The good news is our wrong and shame have not won, but His love and grace and rejoicing over us have won. And if you can begin to glimpse what all this must be like, then you can start to understand the party that the father threw for his runaway son when the prodigal finally came home. As Jesus tells the parable in Luke 15, there's this barbecue and a band and an open bar with toasts throughout the afternoon and cakes with frosting letters that read, congratulations on being loved beyond your worth and welcome home from your sin binge. And the partiers raise such a holy thunder throughout the afternoon that finally the runaway son who's come home feels obliged to take the stage and he cuts the band off 
And he steps to the mic as it squelches out over the crowd. And with tears in his eyes, he says, thank you all for coming. And he raises his glass and says, here's to all my bloody failures. Not that I want to go on living them, mind you. But without them, I would never have known the depth of the love of my father. And without them, I would never have been able to celebrate his love instead of distrusting it and running away from it. And thank you all for celebrating with me. And for the father's part, he rolls through the crowd all afternoon, passing out cigars and slapping shoulders and pumping hands and alternately laughing and sobbing. And he keeps throwing his arm around his son's neck and slathering kisses on the boy. And he says to his guests, can you believe this kid? This is my son. And he says it like this son is a self-made financial genius instead of a spoiled heir who just blew his entire inheritance. He says it like the son just graduated from Harvard at the top of his class instead of graduating from a parade of whores' laps. But that's how he loves us. He loves us just like that. That's how Jesus rejoices over us every minute of every day through his gospel, and there's something painfully missing in us when we don't join him at it, when we don't act like the prodigal enjoying his own paradoxical party. And in a very prophetic way, Hosea doesn't really close his book. He just stops being the narrator of the story. The drama continues... The bride still disbelieves the love of her groom, the love of the true and faithful God, and she still wants to run. Every day she wants to run. But the prophecy ends with a hanging question. What are you going to do? Will you run? Or will you believe the healing, satisfying love of the great lover more than your disbelief and not run off into old and new seductions? Hosea writes, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright, the loved, Walk in them. But the transgressors, those who don't know love, will stumble in them. You can stop running now, Hosea writes. You are perfectly loved in Christ. Those who have ears to hear, hear and believe. Oh Lord Jesus, for all of our running, You have remained always faithful and you've chased after us and you've called us back into your embrace and you've stripped us of the rags of our infidelities and put upon us the robes, the party clothes of your love. Lord Jesus, you have not left us to be crushed under the weight of our guilt 
But with each new tryst and failing, you have a new supply of grace and renewal for us. And for this, we are endlessly thankful. Now convince us by the love that you are never hesitant to lavish upon us. Convince us by this love that it's pointless to run. What do we think we'll find in each new seduction? A better love? Someone who will die for us more? Someone who will live for us more? Ah, show us the emptiness of our sin and our idols. And show us that rest and peace is found in submission and not following after our disbelief, but in scolding it and pressing it back, proclaiming to ourselves the good news in Christ's love and not believing the whispers of doubt that swirl through our hearing. And now you give us bread and wine to confirm to us that your love is unfailing and true. For all the times we've accused you of not truly loving us in bread and wine, you hold out to us again the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the feast of grace so we can stop filling ourselves on empty feasts, binges of sin. Instead, we can gorge ourselves and the beauty and truth of our Savior. We've already sung it this morning, but help us never to forget the bitterness of our abandonments, the poison of our sin and unbelief. You have turned all of our scars into the trophies of your love, and we lay all of our trophies at your feet. You are the great lover the Lord of sinners. Help us to turn from our sin and help us to find new confidence in the way you love us. And now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.